Crime One and Chaos contains adult language and graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Pack it up, pack it in, Chaos Kids. I'm Amber. And I'm Naomi. And this is Crime Wine and Chaos. <laughs> pack it up, pack it in. <laughs> A little <laughs> shout out to Cypress Hill. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Oh, hello, sister. hello, my sister. How are things? Um, how are things? I mean, you know, good. Uh, it's Friday. I made mm. it through the week, and mm. I, it was a very busy week, and I did a lot of things. And then today got a little bit quiet enough that I was finally able to go get a pedicure, which I needed desperately because. I am too old to reach down and like clip my own toenails and they were getting, they were getting dangerously long, you know, like Talons. dangerously long. They were, they were like wep. They were soon to be, yes, yeah, soon to be weapons. So I went and got a pedicure and then it, I, I came home and I should have, they sh- my, my, the polish should have been dry. And then I stubbed my toe and it turns out the polish wasn't dry. And so now like oh. my one big toe was all bunged and I got to figure out what I'm going to do. But anyway, it's fine. As soon as we're done recording here, I get to go to my monthly, well, it's been over a month because of other busyness that has been going on, but I'm get to go to my monthly massage after this. So I'm going to go have my massage. That will be the end for me. Are, like the end, the end. Are you, you telling know? me that like, you just a pedicure and a massage in the same day? Yes. I'm doing life wrong. Also, a, like a like a mini manicure where they just clean it up because I don't actually get like nail polish on my fingers or anything like that. So they just clean it up. But that also does include like a hand massage, like a hand and a forearm massage. You know, the pedicure also involves like a like a like a foot and like lower leg massage. Plus, you know, it's like the sh- the chair. It's like a massage chair. So like I'm pre-massaged for my like full body massage after this. I'm doing my whole your, ass life your face wrong. Looking at me right now, your face like like you're waiting for like like or like you just saw like a monster grow out of my shoulder. Like you can't even. What the fuck? I <laughs> uh, love that for you. How about you? What's going on with you? Oh well, God, <laughs> nothing like that. What did I even? <laughs> God, what the fuck? Jesus Christ, sister. I don't have any words. Like I just got done. I did a town hall meeting at my day job last night where residents came out with pitchforks, literally. (laughs) And um, is that going to be your chaos story today? (laughs) No, nope, nope. We'll just uh, no, that doesn't need to be mentioned. And um, my equivalent of a massage was hopping out of this chair periodically today and making sure to do some, you know, child's pose and downward dogs so that I didn't, you know, seize up because I've been in the same spot for 12 hours. (laughs) That's it. That's my life. So good for you and your pedicure (laughs) and your hand massage and your body massage. God. Bougie B, man, I'm doing everything I mean, wrong. Oh, look. yeah. Look, you know what? This is about. It's this is really about like what we prioritize. Okay, mm-hmm. that's all I'm saying. I know. I'm saying I'm doing it wrong. These are these prioritize my choices. You okay? All right, I will. Jesus well, okay. Christ. Okay, <laughs> are you at least 
drinking a delicious glass of wine. Tell me about that. Yes, I am drinking a nice cold rosé. Um, I think it's a many. I've had it on here before. A M M E N I. Would you call that a many? Sure. Okay. Why not? Yeah. Wine, not. <laughs> see what I did there? Oh my God. No. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I do see what you did there. I'm saying no. I'm saying no I'm to that. So pleased with myself. <laughs> I'm saying no to that. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> Okay, you know what? Mm-hmm. We need to just get this party started. We've we've we're off the rails. We haven't thought, even gotten into a story yet. I thought it was started. Okay, all right, you go. No, you go. All right, all right, all right. No, you you go. Oh no, I go. I, all I right, go. all right, all right. Oh, no. <laughs> we're a little punchy today. Okay. Oh. Um I'm gonna tell you about Jesse Valencia. Do you know about Jesse Valencia? No, but that's a pretty name. Mm. Okay. Well, let's get into it. Um, Jesse James Wade Valencia was born February 22nd, 1981 in Boyle County, Kentucky, and was one of three children. He had two sisters he was really close with, and they grew up in this itty-bitty town called Perryville, which had a population of like 750 people at the time of the 2010 census. Oh, geez. Yeah. Jesse's parents divorced when he was still a baby, and his mom, Linda, remarried Jesse's stepdad, Lupe, who raised Jesse as his own. Um, and Lupe really, really loved Jesse. Oh. Is that where um, he got the last name, Valencia? I think maybe so. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, Linda and Lupe raised the three kids very near Linda's parents. And they all spent like all their time basically with the grandparents on the farm. And Jesse basically grew up in the barn. He loved riding horses. Um, he came out to his mom as gay when he was a young teenager and Linda loved him and supported him without question. It was never an issue in his family at all. Jesse was a really good looking kid. Um, and he even worked as a model after high school before he moved down to Columbia, Missouri to go to college at the University of Missouri or Ms. Mizzou, as they Mizzou. call it. Mizzou. Um, Jesse was studying pre-law and journalism. I also read a couple of places where they said he was studying history and uh, political science. So I, I'm... He was really smart, right? Yeah. Like he was really smart. He had really good grades, um, but he definitely had the intention of becoming a lawyer. His friends and family back home were super proud of what he was accomplishing, especially considering this, this tiny town that he came from. In June of 2004, Jesse was 23 years old and ending his junior year, just or had just ended his junior year, um, and he was a bit of a partier. Actually, Jesse was the life of the party. Well, he sure, really it's college. En- yeah. I mean, yes. <laughs> but like Jesse really enjoyed making sure everyone was having fun. He made friends on and off campus pretty much everywhere he went. He was just fun and he was universally well liked. Like everybody that knew Jesse liked Jesse. And Jesse also hooked up quite a bit. He was in no hurry to get into anything serious or monogamous. While he was having a good time at college, he had a few, some would call him boyfriends or lovers, but I would say mostly friends with benefits, nothing serious. Um, All some of them, some of them were 
ongoing. Um, and he was openly gay, right? Even in, in college, he was a huge advocate of social justice. And I, I think that was likely a, a main, a big reason why he wanted to become a lawyer. Oh, I love him. On the morning of the 5th of June, some students saw the body of a young man laying in the grass between two houses just off campus, assuming that it was a fellow student who had gotten wasted and passed out in the lawn. They approached the young man only to discover he was not passed out at all. There was entirely too much blood for that to be the case. And it, and they quickly realized that he was deceased. So of course they called 911. Um, when the police arrived, they also very quickly realized that this death was not an accident. The murder of a student in the college town of Columbia, Missouri was shocking. Columbia had a reputation as a relatively safe place. Students felt secure enough to walk home in the dark. Um, Violent crime was really rare. Most of the calls to the police were for typical college shenanigans like noise complaints and drunken disorderly, you know, shit like that. Yeah, sure. The only clothing on the body was a pair of blue boxer shorts. It was clear that the throat had been slit. Investigators had no idea who the victim was, so they went door-to-door in the neighborhood with just a picture of his face until one of the neighbors said, oh, yeah, that's Jesse Valencia. Oh, that's awful. But um, are you telling me that they took, like, a Polaroid picture of his deceased face? Yes. No. I'm Yes. Yes. God. Jesse's body was found seven houses down the block from where he lived, in an old house that had been converted to apartments. Mm -hmm. Inside his apartment, there were signs of a struggle. According to one of Jesse's next-door neighbors, he had come home drunk around 3 a.m. and went to bed. Not long after, he said he heard a bunch of noise coming from Jesse's apartment, like someone was bumping into the wall as if they were drunk and being clumsy. The neighbor then heard someone yelling, stop, stop, stop. And this went on for a few minutes, this commotion. The neighbor was annoyed and trying to sleep. So he hollered out, yes, stop it. And he kind of pounded on the wall or something. And he said it went quiet over there. And that was that. Um, Sorry, real quick. Does Jesse live alone? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Police surmised that the struggle moved from the apartment out into the night, likely with Jesse running away from his attacker, even though no other neighbors on the block reported hearing anything during that time. Mm -hmm. Police did find a used condom in Jesse's apartment that was collected and sent for testing for DNA. Um, Jesse's body is taken to the coroner's office for an autopsy. It is very clear that Jesse put up a big time fight. There was heavy bruising around his collarbone area and significant bruising in the middle of his back between his shoulder blades. There was also skin under his fingernails that was collected and tested for DNA and arm hairs were also found on Jesse's chest that did not belong to Jesse. Hmm. Jesse's throat was cut so deeply that it severed both his jugular veins and it nicked his spine. Oh my God. It was determined the knife used was serrated. There were no defensive wounds characteristic of a knife attack on Jesse's hands, which initially came as a surprise to detectives. However, this finding made more sense when the medical examiner found marks on his neck consistent with strangulation. It was therefore determined that Jesse had been strangled and was unconscious before the perpetrator cut his throat. I mean, that's fucking awful, but also maybe that's a blessing for him. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. 
I don't know either. <laughs> Just a few hours after the autopsy, a call comes into the police. Jesse's friend, Crystal, tells investigators in this call that she had a party at her place the night before and Jesse had come by for a bit. He was happy and carefree, having a good time, like always. Crystal said Jesse showed up with two other guys that she had never met before, Eric Thurston and Eric's roommate, Ed McDevitt. She told them that Eric left the party around 2.30 in the morning, and about half an hour later, Jesse left with Ed. So now police want to talk to both these young men. Yeah. Police brought them in at the same time and put them in separate interview rooms. You know, this old tactic. Mm -hmm. When police told Eric Thurston that Jesse was dead, Eric's response to that, very unemotionally, was that he could murder someone, but he didn't kill Jesse. Whoa, whoa. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. That's okay. basically what the police thought, too. Oh, my God. Okay, dude. Right. Eric also tells the cops that he and Ed used to be together, but had recently broken up, and now Ed and Jesse are dating. Hmm. I, I think dating is a subjective term here, since we know that Jesse wasn't really one to settle down or be with only one person or consider it dating more like hmm a friends with benefits situation. But I think essentially what Ed, Eric is saying is that he and Eric, he and Ed used to be fucking and now Ed and Jesse are fucking. And he don't like that. I don't think so. Okay. Of course, that weird ass comment about being capable of murder along with the fact that he and Ed just broke up, shot Eric to the top of the suspect list. And it seems really plausible considering that the nature of Jesse's murder speaks to a very personal one. Mm -hmm. Your proverbial crime of passion, right? Right. Eric claims that after he left Crystal's party, he met some dude named Kevin and the two spent the night together. Just some rando named Kevin? Mm-hmm. Okay. Which I feel like you had in your story the last time you told me a murder story or a, a, a crime. Yeah. Remember uh, Jeffrey Wills? Willis oh, yeah. is His little buddy that helped him? Uh, or, Jeffrey Willis, Jeffrey Willis, when he was on the stand and said his brother Kevin oh, did it. Oh yeah, his cousin Kevin in the bonus episode. Oh, sorry, yeah, cousin Kevin. Yeah, 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 Kevin yeah, yeah, did yeah. it. Kevin did Kevin it. Did, Kevin did it. Mm -hmm. So like yeah, Randy. Kevin. Okay, so at the same time as this shit is going down down the hall, Ed is going through his own police interview. Mm -hmm. Ed was super upset. He is crying when he finds out that Jesse is dead. Oh. He said he met Jesse about two days before at a local nightclub. This is where they initially met. Ed was taken by Jesse instantly, which by all accounts, everyone always was. And the two hooked up at Jesse's place that same night. Like they left the club together and went back to Jesse's place and had sex. Ed tells the police that the condom the police found at Jesse's apartment was actually from that first night that he and Jesse had been together after meeting at that club. Then, as we know, they were at Crystal's party together the next night, which would be the night before this interview. Right. Um, Ed said that when he and Jesse left the party, they chatted for a few minutes on the sidewalk outside of her house. Jesse really wanted Ed to come home with him, but Ed said he had to work early in the morning at like 6 a.m. He was a chef. This is like... In three hours Jesus from this conversation Christ. or something, right? Like, Jesus yeah. Christ. I know. Fucking college kids. You know what I'm saying? Can you yeah. like to be 22 or 23 and be yeah. like. You can cram a lot into one day. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> now it's like, I did one thing. I need to rest. I yeah. need a nap. <laughs> I need a nap. <laughs> 
need to lay down. Okay. <laughs> he said that Jesse walked home by himself. Hmm. And Ed says that when he got home, he went straight to bed. So Ed doesn't have a strong alibi. Obviously, he lives alone. He has no one to corroborate that he just went home and went to bed. But he also doesn't really have a motive at this right. point. Before Ed and Eric are released from their interviews, the police request and do obtain DNA from them both. Good. And then another call comes in to the police. This one's anonymous this time. This tip says that Jesse was having a relationship with a married Columbia police officer. Oh, plot twist. Married married with a young child. Uh-huh. Of course, the Columbia police had no openly gay officers on their force. Mm-hmm. And one of the officers interviewed for the How I Caught My Killer episode that covered Jesse's murder said they couldn't know for sure that this wasn't just someone who hates cops or whatever making some bogus claim, but that they still had to follow this lead anyway. Sure. Another interview of one of Jesse's friends, Andy Shermerhorn, gives this anonymous tip more credibility. Andy and Jesse used to hook up, and he claimed that on the night of May 14th, so about three weeks prior to Jesse's murder, he was at Jesse's apartment. They were having sex at around 3.30 in the morning when there was a knock at Jesse's door. Jesse answered the door and there was a uniformed police officer standing there. Oh. Andy shot up and stood up like on the bed. He's freaked out thinking some shit was about to go down. Mm-hmm. And Jesse's like, it's all good. It's cool. It's cool. This guy's cool. And the police officer came in, took off his gun belt, and joined Andy and Jesse in bed. Oh, fuck. Okay. And when they were done, yeah. And when they were done, the police officer said to them both, this has got to be a secret. Mm-hmm. Andy did not get this cop's name. When the investigators asked Andy in this interview if he might be able to identify this officer, if he saw the cop again, Andy said, we passed him out there in the hall. <gasps> oh my God. I just got chills. Okay. Police quickly realized the officer Andy was talking about was Stephen Rios. Stephen Rios had been one of the officers posted outside of Jesse's apartment immediately after his body had been found and identified. Oh, shh. Uh, Stephen Rios was a Columbia police officer, married, with a new baby at home. I have so many feelings right now. He was young, in his early 20s, and had only been on the force for two or three years. Investigators dig in on this shit. And they find out that seven weeks earlier in mid-April, Stephen Rios had responded to a complaint about a party being hosted by three young women who were friends of Jesse's. Police had actually been called twice that night about noise complaints because of this party. And I think it was on the second call, Jesse got between these gals and Rios and questioned Rios for trying to arrest his friends, which apparently is very in character for Jesse to do. Like nobody was surprised that he did this. Oh, so Rios arrested Jesse for obstruction of government operations and wrote him a ticket to appear in court. What a buzzkill. Rios showed up for work on the day of the murder and didn't hide the fact that he'd arrested Jesse weeks earlier. But now they're the police are concerned that having this guy be the one to guard Jesse's apartment means it's possible that if he was the one who killed Jesse, he may have taken that opportunity to go inside Jesse's apartment and tamper with evidence. Well, yeah. Of course. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Maybe just to hide the fact that he had a sexual relationship with Jesse, but worse to remove evidence that he was the killer. Yeah. Uh, this is where my, I have some, I mean, I have as much empathy as I can, well, sympathy, I guess, for somebody who has not 
struggled with not living my authentic self. So there's that, but balancing it with like your ethical obligation working in that field to say like, I know this person personally, I can't be on this case, you know, like Uh that's a tough spot to be in, but oh God, fuck. That's rough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On June 8th. So now we're three days post Jesse's murder, Rios comes into work and sits down with the sergeant and says, he knows this tip has come in. His name might be brought into it, but he wants the sergeant to know it is not him. Not him that murdered Jesse or not him that was sleeping with Jesse? I think not him that murdered him. Okay. I think. No, maybe not him at all. Mm-hmm. Rios didn't know at this time that and. Yeah, I think it was he was trying to say it wasn't him at all. Like, I know you heard that maybe a cop on the force was involved with this kid, but it's not me. Okay. And he didn't know, right? Rios didn't know when he's having this conversation with the sergeant that Andy Shermerhorn has already come in and talked to police and and identified him. So the sergeant tells him, like, well, we talked to this guy, Andy, who says on May 14th, you came by Jesse's place in uniform at 3.30 in the morning and joined them for sex. Uh huh. And Rios is like, sex? So he's denying all of it at first, but he eventually admits that he did have sex with Jesse. Okay. He says they had sex six times, and the last time was a week before Jesse was found dead. He also says the reason he didn't tell anybody sooner is because his wife would leave him if he ever had an affair. So like, yeah, we had sex, but I didn't kill him, and I don't know who did or what happened to him. So- this is probably too, probably not covered, but if he's in uniform, I'm assuming he's on shift. Like That's right. Officers have like, or at least they're supposed to, like people at dispatch at the station know their whereabouts at all times. Can't they just look and see if his patrol car was at Jesse's apartment at 3 a.m. that day that Andy is saying that they had a sexual encounter? I I mean, I, I imagine, but okay. like if they're not using GPS at that time and he's lying about his whereabouts to dispatch. That's true. Right? I mean, we already established that both of us are FBI profilers. So clearly one, right. one of us should have been on this case, but go on. 100%. 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, Rios gets put on leave until he can be completely cleared as a suspect in this murder. He gives investigators permission to search his car and his house. They find nothing. Mm. And like, let's be real, right? These cops do not want this guy to be the guy, right? Right. And since he says that the last time he saw Jesse was a week before his murder, the cops turn back to Eric and Ed, the last two people they know to see Jesse the night of his murder. So both Eric and Ed agree to let police search their apartments. And again, police find nothing. They finally tracked down Kevin, rando guy that Eric said he hooked up with after Crystal's party and also Eric's alibi. Kevin's version of events align with Eric's. They were together the whole night. Eric is cleared from the suspect list, even though he's a fucking weirdo. Yeah, he is a fucking weirdo. But also, like, there's enough days that have lapsed that Eric could have told Kevin to you know, corroborate his his <laughs> alibi, right? I mean, that's true. But if he's like some random hookup, is Kevin going to lie to the police for Eric? I don't know. Maybe it was a really good hookup. I don't fucking know. <laughs> oh, I want a really good hookup. Okay. Mm. Um, poor Ed still has no good alibi beyond I went home and went to sleep. Mm-hmm. Also, Ed is a chef, so, you know, he, quote, has access to all kinds of knives. 
Everybody does that has a kitchen. I know. I know. Exactly. You just have to throw when that I, in because it was mentioned. Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm going to let this that slide. This is how the police are thinking. <laughs> this is how the police are thinking. I, this is the, I, so I put you, the chaos kids can't see it, but I did air quotes around that whole thing. Like I'm quoting, I'm quoting the police on this, right? He has access to lots of knives. He's a chef. And it was like a serrated bread knife. I mean, because I mean, we know it's a serrated knife. We don't know what kind of knife. Okay. It's got to be sharper than a, than a, than a shitty like home bread knife though, if it went all the way to his fucking spine. But still all people have access to knives, but okay. I mean, right. It's not like knives are rare, right? It was a middle-aged 40-year-old white guy. I'm a profiler. (laughs) I'm a profiler. (laughs) Okay. 100%. Mm-hmm. So then someone leaks Rio's name to the media, which police really did not want happening, obviously. And so now Rios is humiliated with his family, his friends, his fellow officers who didn't know yet, the community, and he loses his fucking shit, mm. like publicly. Uh-oh. He heads to Walmart, buys a shotgun, then tells some of his colleagues he's going to kill himself. Oh, no. So that gets him a do not pass go, do not collect $200 direct to mental health facility mm-hmm. um, for a men- for mental health treatment, which is also reported in the paper. So like the paper, they, I don't know if the paper reported that he was a suspect, but they reported that he was having sex with this, this dead college boy. What the fuck? Um, and now they've reported that he threatened to kill himself and is, and is getting treatment in a mental health facility. But the very next day after he's checked into this place, the facility calls the police to tell them that Rios has escaped. Oh. When they track him down, he's standing on the ledge of the top of a parking garage, like five or six levels up, threatening to jump off. Oh. And it's a scene. News cameras are there capturing the whole thing. This police guy. are trying to talk him down. And the question now is, wait, so is this the actions of a man that is ashamed and embarrassed that his wife knows he's had an affair and that his fellow cops know that he's gay? Or are we watching a murderer acting out of desperation knowing he's going to be found out? It could be either one of those that would lead somebody to this. It could be either one of those. So he's on that ledge for like two hours before officers are able to talk him down and they transfer him to a more secure facility that he can't escape from. Even after all of this, police still don't have enough probable cause to arrest Rios. And unlike poor Ed, Rios has an alibi. Mm. Rios said he got off work at three in the morning, went to the rooftop of the police station and drank some beers with some other cops and drove home. His wife confirmed that Rios arrived home between 5.15 and 5.30 a.m. And she remembered that well because she was up with the newborn at the time. Mm-hmm. Police dispatcher Leah Wooden remembers Rios leaving the rooftop at 4.47 in the morning. Okay. So investigators, they really dig in on this, and I'm going to give credit where it's due because they could have heard those two women's statements and called it good. But Mm -hmm. instead, they had officers actually drive from the building where Rios was drinking on the rooftop to Jesse's apartment and then to the Rios home, and the entire drive took seven minutes. Okay. That means if he got home between 5.15 and 5.30 a.m., there was between 25 to 35 minutes of unaccounted time in his alibi. Hmm. And although investigators never did recover the murder weapon, they had several officers tell them they remembered Stephen Rios carrying a knife on him all the time, a serrated knife. Oh, shit. 
Then one of Jesse's closest friends comes to speak to the police. Joan Sheridan told investigators that when Jesse went to court for that obstructing government operation charge on May 25th, the case didn't get thrown out and he was certain that it would be. He was apparently under the impression that sleeping with Rios would get him the favor of Rios pulling some strings to get that charge dropped. Oh. Some articles even reported that Rios, when he first came to start having sex with Jesse, may have even implied or outright stated that that would be the case. That was his in, huh? Yes. Mm-hmm. Investigators considered that it's very possible Jesse threatened Rios about going to the chief of police or maybe even his wife with this secret sex they were having, and that would be motive for Rios to murder Jesse. Mm-hmm. But whether it was Rios or it was Ed, the cops had no physical evidence yet to definitively connect either one of them to this murder. Are we still waiting on the lab results for the skin and the arm hair? That's right. Oh, okay. Sorry. I wasn't sure for you. Yep. All right. I'll We're sit tight. Waiting. I'll sit tight. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> it's literally the next thing. Oh, okay, great. A month after Jesse's murder, this has all gone down and the cops have been sitting around waiting for the DNA results and they come back. Mm-hmm. The condom found in Jesse's apartment had both Jesse and Ed's DNA inside and outside the condom, which was not a huge surprise since Ed already said that it was from their last night together. The DNA of the skin underneath Jesse's fingernails, however, belonged to Stephen Rios. Mm-hmm. And those arm hairs found on Jesse's chest was a one in 57 trillion match to Stephen Rios. Oh, God. And Stephen Rios was arrested and charged with first degree murder. Mm-hmm. Not long after these charges were filed, three women came forward and claimed that Rios had also made inappropriate advances toward them. It seemed like Rios was using his badge to get his dick wet. Wow, what a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. Rios entered a plea of not guilty at arraignment. The trial of Rios began on May 17, 2005, almost a year after Jesse's murder. The prosecution was headed by Morley Swingle, who was brought in from another county because of Rios's ties to the prosecutor's office in Columbia. Yeah. The prosecution leaned heavily on the theory that Rios killed Jesse to keep him quiet after Jesse threatened to tell the police chief about their affair. Mm-hmm. Others close to Jesse testified that Jesse was upset when he found out Rios, Rios was married and also that Rios would often show up unannounced in the middle of the night, usually in uniform. So presumably while on the clock out on patrol. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, that's exactly what his other friend with benefits said. God. And that's such a threatening presence too to just. Yes. Show up you in know. your uniform with your gun holster mm-hmm. and shit. Yeah, yes. To get what you want. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Rios took the stand in his own defense. Of course he did. Mm -hmm. He says that while he may be a liar and an adulterer, he is not a murderer. Rios's trial lasts four days. Jurors deliberate 14 hours. They come back with guilty for first degree murder, which comes with a life sentence without parole, plus 20 years for armed criminal action for the knife Mm -hmm. being involved. When the marshals... (laughs) Mm-hmm. Oh, I missed the part where I told you, I forgot to tell you that Rio's, Rio's wife, Libby, mm-hmm. testified for the defense and maintained her husband's innocence. Oh, I was just going to say his poor wife with a brand new baby. Mm-hmm. When the marshals escorted Rio's from the room, Libby cried out, I love you. And he whispered, I love you back to her. Okay. Mm-hmm. Libby, you can do better, girl. You can do better. 
Outside the courthouse, Swingle called Rios, quote, an arrogant, conceited sociopath. Mm-hmm. He even revealed pieces of evidence that had been ruled inadmissible in trial, like how Rios had lied to Jesse about his name the entirety of their relationship. Rios had told Jesse his name was Ted Anderson. Jesse even called the Columbia PD in search of Officer Anderson. Oh. Swingle noted that the breast pocket name tag of the real Officer Ted Anderson had been stolen. Shut up. This is also when we find out about the three women who came forward with claims of Rios hitting them up for sex after arresting them. Quote, we had three women sitting in the witness waiting room and each of them had been propositioned by him for sexual type acts, Swingle said. If Rios or any other defense witnesses had preferred to his good character, the prosecutor said he was prepared to put the women on the stand to rebut the testimony. Like, no, this guy is not a good dude. He's Mm -mm. a piece of shit. Here, let me trot these women out and let them tell you themselves. Mm -hmm. He also said Rios was fired from a job at the Boone County Jail for renting a storage space under another officer's name. Yeah, forgery, basically, is what Swingle said. And then... Two years after Rios is sent to prison, an appeals court ruled that Joan Sheridan's testimony of the things that Jesse told her about Rios and how Jesse was going to out him to the chief if Rios didn't get that charge dropped was hearsay and inadmissible in court. And this overturns Rios's conviction. Mm-hmm. This is like... um when I did the Judy Malinowski case, it's like everything from somebody who is deceased is hearsay. But like, what do you mean? Right. But, fuck. Uh, sometimes so the prosecutors court rules have are to. Stupid. I I know, and so prosecutors have to try Rios again, mm-hmm. and Swingle comes back to lead this prosecution again. Mm-hmm. This time, the jurors met for like three or four hours, and they came back with a guilty verdict of second degree murder and armed criminal action. This got Rios life in prison for the second degree murder, but this this comes with the possibility of parole. I think he's eligible for his first year, he's eligible for parole is like 2035. That Did they indicate why it was bumped down to a second degree? No, I couldn't find anything about that. Because it seems like the compelling evidence was the DNA in the first place, not Joan's testimony. Agreed. Okay. Rios maintains his innocence to this day. Mm-hmm. And Libby still believes he's innocent as well. And I guess Dateline did a special two hour episode on this case back in April of 2020. And Keith Morrison actually interviewed Stephen Rios. I well, did not have a chance to, because I literally just found that today. So as I was like, like finishing up my, like putting my little fine points on it. Um, mm-hmm. And so I didn't, I didn't have time today to go watch that episode of Dateline. But um, yeah, so they do like a deep dive. I don't know how much they get into like the like details on what happened during the trials or anything. Right. But in this in, in this interview, um, Rios, you know, says something to the effect of basic like like the people that matter know the truth and I'm innocent, you know. Okay, Rios. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that is that's the murder of Jesse Valencia. Fuck, sister, that was dark. Sorry. Do you think I mean that, ACAB, right? I mean, that's not helping. That's not helping the the mm-mm. police. The Do you think his cause. fear was the the um, gay relationship or the infidelity or? I both? think it was both. I think it was both. And also, like, if he propositioned women too for sex, I mean, clearly he's bi. Mm-hmm. He's he's not straight. He is not 
a straight man. He, we're talking about Missouri on the police force. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mean, police march in pride parades now, which is don't even get me started on that nonsense. But I, I, I mean, I, a lot of that shit is for show. Everybody knows that like police departments are old fucking boys clubs and women, minorities, people that are gay, right? They all have to like, still, they still have to conform to that club in order to be considered a part. It's, it's a brotherhood. It is a straight man brotherhood, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it was both. I think it was, I think it was both really. Yeah. God, fuck. That was dark. Sorry, sister. <sighs> Thank you for that. Um, my chaos story is equally dark and it has a lot of common Great. threads. Great. Um, also, I had started this story before we recorded our bonus episode and it's very similar in that. So, and if anybody wants to hear that, you have to sign up for the Patreon at $5 a month. Oh, say, shameless plug. Go become shameless a patron. Plug. Yeah, go become a chaos kid. Um, okay, so I'm going to tell you about the disappearance of Aubrey Demerson. Okay. Okay, so we are going to Grove, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is in the northeastern part of the state. It's a small lakeside town and is part of the Cherokee Nation. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So Aubrey was born on October 27th, 1993. She is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, and she began transitioning and identifying as female during high school. Okay. Aubrey and her uncle, Christian, were only six months apart. I always think that's weird when you have like an aunt or uncle that's like your age. Right. It's like weird. I mean, I mean, I, I, Mara wasn't that much older than me. I know. I know. I mean, it's cool. It's like, just weird. She was like nine years. I mean, that's still like, still like big sister status. It felt mm-hmm. like rather than like, yeah, auntie for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Christian and Aubrey are six months apart. They grew up together more like siblings and they were best friends. Mm-hmm. Aubrey is described as bubbly. She loved entertaining. She was always singing and dancing, and she always rooted for the underdog. Love her. Love her, too. Um, So she came out as trans at the age of 16, and it was really difficult for her at first. Christian said that it was a really dark time, and she faced a lot of hatred in her town. Well, yeah. I mean, she's in Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. uh, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Aubrey would always, her response to people who, you know, launched hate at her was that she would pray for them. Oh, I know. Bless their hearts. Uh Yeah. She was just like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Aubrey. (laughs) Oh my God. So um, anyway, so after high school, she goes to beauty school and then she moved to New Mexico with her boyfriend, Jay. But after a short while, she returned to Grove, Oklahoma. Her Aunt Pam, who is Christian's mom, said that she returned home because her relationship with Jay was toxic. Okay. She said that Aubrey told her that Jay threatened to kill her if she ever left. Oh, my. Oh, no. Mm Mm-hmm. (sighs) Mm-hmm. And Pam encouraged her to stay in Grove, Oklahoma and not return to New Mexico because it was unhealthy and unsafe. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So Aubrey moved into her mom, Jennifer's house, where her mom lived with her boyfriend, Mike Bernard, and Aubrey's brother. Okay. Mm -hmm. So on Saturday, March 16th, 2019, Aubrey's Aunt Pam gets a text message from a friend, and it's a screenshot from social media, and the post says that Aubrey is missing. What? Yeah. So 
Pam calls the local police to get information and they direct her to the county sheriff. And the county sheriff tells her that there is an open missing persons case for Aubrey that was filed by Aubrey's mom, Jennifer. How, why is this how Pam is finding out? It's a great question. What the fuck? Yeah. Is this, um, is Pam, is Aubrey's mom Pam's sister or is this her dad's sister? So Christian, the one that she grew up with as brother, even though it's her uncle, Aubrey's Uh mom is his sister. So I think Pam is actually her great aunt because Pam is Christian's mom. Oh, got you. I, Mm -hmm. yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. So Pam, Pam is Christian's mom. She is her mom's aunt. Yes. Got it. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. So according to Aubrey's mom, Jennifer, Aubrey was last seen around 3 a.m. on March 9th. So this is March 16th when Aunt Pam is getting this screenshot text message. A week later? Yes. What the fuck? Uh Uh-huh. So Jennifer says that she happened to get up to use the bathroom and Aubrey was on her way out the door. She told her she'd be home later, but Jennifer didn't know where she was going or who she would be with. I mean, she's like 20 at this point point. So it's like, okay, bye, you know? Okay. Yeah. So Pam and Christian are both really alarmed that they're just learning about this and she's been missing for a week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But according to Jennifer, it wasn't uncommon for Aubrey to be gone for long stretches of time. According to her mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But Aubrey uh, was epileptic and she didn't take her medication with her. That's okay. So after a few days, Aunt Pam reached out to the sheriff's office again, and they basically told her that because of Aubrey's lifestyle, they weren't all that concerned. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, that's what Pam said. Her lifestyle? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Aunt Pam was like, um, because she's trans or because she's native or both? Yeah, which which bigotry are we going with on this one? Or is Mm -hmm. this like a double up combo? Yeah, she's extra not important because she's got... Right, she's right. She's the least of the least Mm -hmm. important people. Right, got it, got it. Understood, Mm -hmm. understood. Fuck her, (sighs) got it. Yeah. So then this rando woman named Dee Robotham comes forward and she says Aubrey was being held for a drug debt and she wouldn't be released until the debt was paid. So Pam reaches out to Aubrey's ex-boyfriend Jay and she asks him, who is this D person and what is she talking about? And Jay sends Pam screenshots of his text conversation with this D person where D is asking Jay to give her the money for Aubrey's ransom. What? Well, yeah. So Jay takes this information to the police and it's ultimately decided that this D person is full of shit and she is charged with extortion. (laughs) So literal rando in the midst of this tragedy. Yeah. 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 Just inserting herself, trying to be trying to make money off of this tragedy. Yeah. Okay. I think that she somehow was in their friend circle or knew him, but either way. Yeah. Um, You know, in April of 21, her extortion charges were dismissed. There was no further information about how or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Piece of, you know, people that insert themselves into this kind of thing. It's so fucking gross. This is not the first time we've had this happen in one of our stories. No. And it's fucking awful. So meanwhile, uh, mom Jennifer isn't doing shit and neither are the police. So... Pam and Christian organized their own search party. And Jennifer said that when Aubrey left, she was wearing a black skirt, black pantyhose, 
black boots, and a black jacket. So nice. I know, I know, sharp. So the search yeah. party did find a black boot in a ditch right along Jennifer's property. And they had the police come out and collect the boot. And that is when Jennifer changed her story and said she wasn't wearing boots. She was wearing like house slippers. She went out and was going to be gone indefinitely wearing house slippers. Right. I mean, first off, when you see pictures of Aubrey, she's beautiful and on point. I, I fully have faith that she would not be out and about looking shabby. Re- no, ex- right. She was yes, all, exactly. she was not dressed to the threes like you and I. She was to the nines. <laughs> always to the nines. <laughs> she Aubrey was always to the nines. Another woman putting us to shame. It's <laughs> yeah. fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. So on March 23rd, 2019, um, searchers found a sock about a half mile from Jennifer's property, and there appeared to be blood on it. This was also given to the police and they said it was tested and came back inconclusive. So Pam and Christian end up reaching out for help um, from a search and rescue expert. And they search with canines on Jennifer's property and the dogs hit on a shed in the far back corner of the property and on a pond on the property. And they thoroughly search both, but they don't find anything. And while they're doing the search... I'm going to be so mad at the end of this, aren't I? Fucking cannot. I'm so, I cannot with you Mm -hmm. today. I cannot with you today. Keep going. I'm sorry, but, um, okay. While they're doing (laughs) this, I don't know if Jennifer was home and just chilling, but she had no part. I mean, I guess the only thing I could give her credit for is that she allowed a search that wasn't, um, mandatory by law enforcement on her property, but she's not helping or participating in any way. I don't know. So then another very weird random anonymous tip comes in about Aubrey being on a hill near a flagpole in the nearby town of Kenwood. Oh my God. Is this like a fucking psychic calling in? I'm, I'm not really sure, but so uh, they go there. That is a location that exists and um, they find a black jacket. And once again, now we're like, what now we're like fucking on some, some fucking anonymously made fucking scavenger hunt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But again, Jennifer changes her story and says that Aubrey wasn't wearing a black jacket. Let me guess. She was wearing a, a like a house robe, <laughs> a pajama top. With the slippers. She was, <laughs> what the fuck? She was wearing a muumuu. <laughs> no, no. Aubrey would not have done such a thing. So in July of 2020, the county sheriff's office hands the case over to the Cherokee Nation Marshal Service. Thank God. I wish it had been given to them from go because their method is that they default to treating every missing person case as a homicide until they have evidence that tells them otherwise. Really? Interesting. Mm -hmm. What a fucking concept. Right. Yep. Mm hmm. Um, they also feel very strongly that this is a hate crime. Um, they said, uh, quote, indigenous women are 10 times more likely to be murdered than white women. And the number of transgender people nearly doubled from 2017 to 2021 for murder victims. We've talked about this. Yep. Yep. We've talked about this. Yeah. Then the PI working for Pam and Christian says that he got a call from Jennifer and he says that Jennifer told him that her boyfriend, Mike, admitted to killing Aubrey. Mm -hmm. So the police are called. And when they arrive at Jennifer and Mike's home, Mike has already left. They find him down the road and pull him over. And he is arrested for driving under the influence. And when they question him and Jennifer about Aubrey, they both say that they never said that. 
What the fuck? These people are. What is going on? Are they know. drug users? Well, mm-hmm. he's a he's a he's drunk driving. Maybe are are I, they alcoholics? What I I have no idea. But Christian in this thing that I was watching was alluding to a lot of um, Aubrey's why it was so difficult for her was because of a lack of acceptance from Jennifer and her brother. I mean, th- clearly. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what Aunt Pam and Christian's living situation was. I don't know why living at her mom's was where she landed, and or what you know. I don't know, but it just right why she wasn't with Christian or Pam. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. Yes. So yeah, uh, Pam and Christian say nobody in the household has done anything to help with the search. And Christian said that just two weeks after Aubrey went missing, Jennifer packed up her room. What the fuck? Um, In July of 2020, the Supreme Court ruled that cases involving Indian reservations would be investigated by by tribal police and the FBI. So that's good. That's good. So Aubrey is five foot nine, 130 pounds. She is transitioning, uh, transgender, Native American with brown eyes, brown hair, and a triquetra, that might be a tribal triquetta, T-R-I-Q-U-E-T-R-A, symbol tattoo Okay. on her back and another tattoo reading shorty on her upper left arm. That was her nickname. (laughs) So cute. She has entered into the National Crime Information Center and the National Missing and Unidentified Person Systems. And I will put the flyer and the link to her missing person page in the episode notes. Fucking A, sister. I know. I know. It's all the random misleading things that are just fucking weird. The jacket? Uh Uh-huh. The flagpole in another town? Like what? And the black boot in the ditch after she what, said what? she was like, at first you would think like she said she was wearing that and then she's planting those things. But then what? what's the point of then saying, no, she wasn't wearing that. What is she doing? Right. I, I mean, the only, I mean, it's all just like, it would all just be like random speculation, but like, I, is it like she knows that her boyfriend killed Aubrey and on the one hand, kind of wants him to be caught, but on the other hand, maybe she's afraid of him. But also she like like in the moment, maybe she was fine with it because she's disappointed in her what her who her child has become, but also she's a mom who has some guilt around the fact that she may mm-hmm. have some part to answer for in what happened to Aubrey. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't even and yeah, I mean, almost like in the throes of an argument, maybe she narked him out. And then after the right. death settled, she said, never mind. Right. Like they were fucking drunk and mm-hmm. they were fighting because he's a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. He, he, maybe he abuses her. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They get into a fight. She fucking narks him out or she plant, she throws out a piece of evidence. Mm-hmm. She sends an anonymous tip. She's trying to like, you know, fucking get him. But then when she sobers up and changes her mind, she retracts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what's going on with brother. Like, he's just radio silent. Like, what the fuck? I can't, I just can't even imagine. I, I can't wrap my mind around it. No. I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't understand any, I don't understand not loving your kid or loving your sibling. I, I, don't, I don't get either. it. I, I don't I, fucking it, get it. I don't get it either. I, God, I mean, who knows? Who, uh, where, 
we were lucky enough to not be raised in Oklahoma. I don't fucking know. I mean, that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Well, sister, that was fucking brutal. I'm really Thank sorry. You for that. Um, man, poor fucking Aubrey. Poor Aubrey. That makes me sad. That mm-hmm. makes me really sad. Poor Jesse. Yeah. Poor everybody. I guess today. We just had a we had a theme. We had a theme today, I guess. Yeah. I guess God. that's what happens. That was so that's what happens when sisters when sisters unite. We we can't help ourselves. I know. But we got we got synced up, only it's with like <laughs> horrendous crime. That's right. That's <laughs> oh my exactly God. right. Well, this is just that's, we don't talk to each other about our cases. And so sometimes this is what's gonna happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what? The chaos kids know what they're in for. They do. They do. Um do we have anything for the good of the order? You know, follow us on all the things. Um, Tinfoil Top Hat will be playing a show at Connor Byrne on October 14th if you want to come out and check out some live music. It's a cool little spot in Ballard if you're local. Right on. Yeah. Right on. And what about you? Uh, well, I mean, you know, I told you the other day I'm I'm working on uh, getting us set up for another live show for the podcast here in the Seattle Ooh. area. So. If you're a chaos kid in Seattle, uh, keep your ear to the ground for that because we're going to try and make that happen. Uh, we had such a good time that, oh my that God. last time we did it. That was so fun. Um, if you guys want to hear how much of a good time we had, you can join the Patreon for only $5 a month. And it's on there as a bonus episode. <laughs> Amber is really on one today. Look, you guys, you guys, we want to keep making this podcast. Mm-hmm. We love doing it. But we got to keep the lights on and we need patrons to do that. So if you love us and you enjoy us and you appreciate our content and all the work and the blood, sweat and tears that we, that we put into uh, bringing you these episodes, then go join the Patreon, please. Please And yeah, you you. can hear that, uh, that live show you missed out on and a bunch of other bonus content. And we get three more, three more chaos kid club members and uh we have another virtual wine night together so mm-hmm. get in there make See it all happen. your pretty faces yes all right sister uh, well. well sister yep that was fucking mother mother fucking chaotic. chaotic goodbye love you bye, love you, bye. Wine and Chaos is produced by 8th Direction Records. Artwork by Joshua M. Davis. Music by Paul Abner. If you would like to support the show, you can visit our Patreon page at Crime, Wine, and Chaos forward slash Patreon. Cheers! Oh, I want a really good hookup. Bougie B.